pray. Father, we do ask that, that now, as we turn to your word, that you'll really teach us. Father, I pray that there will be great clarity in what's said. And Lord, we just ask that your Holy Spirit will be upon me, but Lord, upon everyone here who's hearing. Father, just really show us wonderful things because there's so much here to discover. And Lord, as we turn to the whole subject of what it means to be the church, oh, Father, we pray for a special blessing upon that because we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Right, well, we actually start tonight our church life series. Uh, we're going to be involved in this for six months or so. There's sort of 24, 25 talks. And, um, and we're going to be exploring what the Bible says about being the church of Jesus Christ. And right at the start, I want to say that what we're covering in these talks is going to run very much in tandem with and alongside the Spiritual Gifts series. Now, there was a lot of teaching in that series. There were 14 talks in that. I'm not going to repeat what was in that. That would be silly because you can get the tapes. But I just want you to make sure that you know that it will only be a complete subject with this series and the Spiritual Gifts series, all right? So the two dovetail together nicely, all right? And also, the last series we did was the Traditions series, and I think that the best way to think of it is that that was the negative. In the Traditions series, we saw how not to do it, didn't we? And that now we're turning to the other side of the coin, and we're going to be seeing the teaching of the Bible about how to do it when it comes to being a church. And one of the reasons that, that this series is fairly important, especially to us, is that it's going to be on the teaching that I give in these talks that is going to become the basis of how this church, the Chigwell Christian Fellowship, runs. So this is going to be an incredibly practical series that we're doing. We're saying, we're a church? Right, what does the Bible say about being a church? And we're going to be adapting ourselves the whole time, changing and fitting in to everything that we discover in the Bible on the subject. And that for the first talk, there's only one subject we can have. And we're going to ask a question, what is a church? We're going to take nothing for granted and absolutely go back to basics. And so tonight, we're going to answer that question. Everyone knows, well, the church, I mean, Christians know the word and they say, oh, we're going to church. But, I mean, how many Christians actually know what a church is? Well, we're going to answer that tonight. But first of all, let's immediately dive into where we're going to be the whole time in the Bible, all right? Everything that we're going to be covering is going to be coming from the Word of God itself. And we're just going to go through a few verses just to see how important this is. And in Ephesians, a few scriptures in Ephesians, first of all, chapter 1 and verse 22. And Paul says, And he, that is God, has put all things under his feet, that is Jesus, and made him head over all things for the church. Go over into chapter 3 and in verse 21. And Paul says, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations 
forever and ever. Amen. Over into chapter 5 and verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body. Go back, uh, no, go forward into Colossians. Colossians 1, verse 18. And here, Paul speaking of Jesus, he is the head of the body, the church. I'm labouring I'm, I'm labouring this quite deliberately. Go back into 1 Corinthians, chapter 4. And in verse 17, Paul says, Therefore I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Last one, 2 Corinthians and chapter 11 and verse 28 and Paul says and apart from other things there is the daily pressure upon me of my anxiety for all the churches now I've thrown out that selection of scriptures to, to get one central point across can you see that the subject of the church is absolutely central to Paul's teaching and to Paul's thinking. The subject of the church is absolutely fundamental to the Christian faith. And yet today, we have so many people who know the Lord, and yet the general feeling around is that what is fundamental to the Christian life is knowing Jesus personally. And that is true, but it's more than that. You'll find that, yeah, the main emphasis in the scripture is that individuals come to know Jesus. Of course it is. Salvation. But then once people are converted, once they've decided to follow the Lord, you'll then find that the Bible equally emphasises the need for them to be part of a biblical New Testament church. In taking the subject of the church, we are dealing with one of the most important, the most vital, and one of the most fundamental doctrines that we have in the Bible. So therefore, <coughs> we turn to the question, right, the church is obviously very important, key subject in the Bible, so what is it? But first, there's one thing that I want you to understand. Just go back to Ephesians and chapter 3. And if you find verse 8, we're going to read a couple of verses. And this is Paul speaking. He says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden phrases in God who created all things. Now, here, Paul is about to reveal a mystery. He's talking about a mystery. But you've got to understand the meaning of the Greek word and what he's meaning here. Because in English, if you talk about a mystery, you're talking about something you're still trying to solve. Can you see? A puzzle that is still unsolved. A good mystery thriller is a good one because until you get to the end you don't know who done it, can you see? But with the Greek word, it's not meaning something that you're trying to find out, it's talking about something that has never been revealed before but now is. 
So a mystery in the New Testament isn't something that everyone's puzzled about. It's a new bit of truth that God has kept to himself but has then revealed. All right. Now let's see what this mystery was. He says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Now here, Paul is saying that the church was a mystery. That the church was something that God kept hidden for thousands of years until the right moment. And it's important to understand that if you read the Old Testament, every word of the Old Testament, there is not one mention of the church whatsoever. The church was a revelation that was absolutely new. God had kept it up his sleeve and he was only going to reveal it when he was ready. And at just the right moment, he let the secret out and the revelation of the church was given. And the right time for God to reveal it was during the ministry of Jesus. The first person to give teaching in the whole Bible about the church was Jesus himself. So at the time of Jesus, the church, if you like, was a revelation whose time had only then come. And that's why if you turn to the Old Testament, you won't find any teaching whatsoever about the church. But does that therefore mean that the Old Testament is useless to us in regards to this subject? Well, no, of course not. And it's for this reason. You see, there are various things in the Old Testament that when you read them in the light of all the information given in the New Testament, you can see quite clearly that the Old Testament contains types or foreshadowings of the church i.e. in the Old Testament there are things which because we've got the New Testament we can understand that they were symbolic of the church. But with just the Old Testament you could never deduce it because there's no teaching about the church. But once you've got the New Testament you can look back into the Old Testament and see all the things there which were kind of types of the church that was yet to come, things that foreshadowed the church, even though in Old Testament times the church was still unknown. And a good way to understand maybe the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament, and this is kind of a bit simplistic, but it's it's a good it's, you know it's a good thing to hold in your mind, is that let's let's say that 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 the New Testament is the script. Well, in the Old Testament, you watch the movie. That if you've got in the New Testament the truth, the doctrine, if you like, in the Old Testament, we find that doctrine played out in human history. So everything, all the truth that was coming from the time of Jesus onwards, that is now our New Covenant, the New Testament, is all there in picture form. You wouldn't necessarily, if you just read the Old Testament, you couldn't guess, oh yes, this is a picture for this truth that's coming. You could never do that. But once you know New Testament truth, you look back and you say, wow, there it is in the Old Testament. And so what, what we're going to do is to have a look at a, just... Um, a couple of the foreshadowings in the Old Testament of what church was going to be all about. There are various ones, but I just want to home in on two of them. 
Now, if you turn to Exodus and chapter 25, and the first thing that we're going to look at is what was called the tabernacle. Now, you'll remember that um, the tabernacle was a tent that as Israel travelled through the wilderness, it was a tent that they erected and they would go into that tent to meet with the Lord. Let's, let's read Exodus 25 and I'm going to read the first part of verse 8 and then I'm going to read verse 9. So Exodus 25, the first part of verse 8 says this. Um, then have them, this is God speaking, have them make a sanctuary for me. A sanctuary. Then go down into verse 9. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So the point is, Israel has come out of Egypt, and that's a picture of getting saved, coming to know Jesus, being saved out of the world. But they're travelling through the wilderness into a land in which they were going to live. Now, Canaan, this land they were travelling to, was a place of permanence. But while they were going through the wilderness, they were wandering. They were going the long way round. They were heading somewhere permanent, but they were going somewhere mobile. They were mobile pe people. And so what happened was is that God said, look, make a tent for me, and what will happen is I will come and presence myself in that tent. Now, let's just read Exodus 25 and the second pass of verse 8. And what the Lord said is, he said, have them make a sanctuary for me, and he says, and I will dwell amongst them. So this tabernacle, what was it going to be? Well, it was going to be the place where God wanted to live while he was travelling with his people through the wilderness. At this time, what were the Jews living in? Tents. And God said, hey, I'll have one. So, they had a pretty big one, bigger than any of their tents, because, well, the Lord's just that much bigger than his people, isn't he? And so, you know, they set up this tent... And here, in this verse, I will dwell among them, this is the first time in the Bible that we have the word dwell. And to dwell means to live, to live in. And it's God coming to live amongst his people. So the tabernacle was quite simply this. It was God's new address. God was moving home. Obviously, God lives in heaven, Always has done, always will do. But in his special presence amongst his people, we have here Almighty God's first address on planet Earth. Um, let's actually look at Exodus 29. Exodus 29, I'm going to read verse 42 to 46. Now, this is the second time that the word dwell is used in the Bible, okay? Exodus 29, verse 42 and 46. And uh, we read, let me find it, um, right, yeah, for the generations 
to come, let me just make sure I've got the right Exodus 20, yeah, I have. For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting, that's what the tabernacle was called, the tent of meeting, before the Lord. There I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites, and the place will be consecrated by my glory. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites. There it is. I will live among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So what he's saying, give me a tent. You got one? I'm going to have one, and I'm going to come and live amongst you. And what we're going to see now, if you turn still in Exodus, but I'm going to read from verse 40, because obviously when somebody says, hey, build me somewhere to live, here they were erecting a tent, obviously eventually comes moving day. And in Exodus chapter 40, the tent is erected, just as the Lord said he wanted it to be. And in Exodus 40, verse 17... So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put ba the bases in places, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars, and set up the posts. Now go down to verse 34. Then the cloud, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So what we've got here now is moving in day. You won't see the moving van, but here is God moving into his new home. And the sign of God presencing himself moving in was this cloud and this, this kind of the glory of the Lord. And you'll remember that once Israel was in the wilderness, God presenced himself amongst them in the form of a, a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And what happened was when the cloud moved on, Israel moved on. When the cloud stopped, Israel would, you know, strike camp and they'd stay there until the cloud moved on. And what Israel came to call this manifestation of the presence of God was the Shekinah glory. Now, that's not a biblical word. You won't find that word in the Old Testament, but it comes from the Hebrew Shechan, which means to dwell. So what they called this was the glory of the dwelling presence of God. That's what it was. God is living amongst us. That's his tent over there. And you know that he's in, well, because the glory of the Lord is all around it. And uh, so there was God living amongst his people in a tent just like they were. Now then, eventually, eventually, Israel got into the land of Canaan and a place of permanence. And they took it over, the Lord gave it to them. And of course now, they are not living in tents anymore because they're somewhere permanent. They're now living in houses. But the Lord stayed living in the tent for another 500 years. Now think about it. Isn't it incredible to know that the Lord 
lived in a tent because that's where his people were living. God always wants to be amongst us in a way that identifies with us. And yet, even when Israel got into Canaan, God was much more concerned with getting them settled in their houses. He was quite happy to stay in his now humble tent because the law's like that. He thinks about us more than he thinks of himself. Thank heavens he thinks about us more than he thinks, oh, what chance would any of us have? But now, if you go to 2 Samuel, we get to the point where the, uh, the Jews have changed their living arrangements, 2 Samuel 7, and uh, so let's see um, that eventually the Lord decided to change his. So what we're going to see now is God's second address on the earth. And 2 Samuel chapter 7 and uh, the first two verses. Oops, I'm in 1 Samuel, let's get to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 7 and the first two verses. After the king, and this is now King David, 500 years after getting into Canaan, after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. So what David is saying, he's saying, hey, look, I've got a big palace, we've all got our houses, the Lord is still in a tent. And David said, that's not right. Now, as you will be aware of, because David was a man of war, God said to him, hey, look, great idea, David, lovely to know that you're thinking of me, <laughs> all right? I'm just thinking of you, but God loves it when his people think of him back. That's called, that's called the obedience of love you see. And, uh, you know, and, and, and so God said, great idea, but I'll tell you what, I want your son's going to build me a house. And so it was Solomon. And if we go now into 1 Kings, 1 Kings and uh, find chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 2 to 5. 1 King chapter 5. Solomon sent back this message to Hiram. You know that because of the wars waged against my father David from all sides, he could not build a temple for the name of the Lord his God until he put, the Lord put his enemies under his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side and there is no adversary or disaster. I intend therefore to build a temple. And a temple is a permanent residence of stone in contrast to a tent which is made of, you know, man-made fibre or, or natural fibres, but it's not solid and it is only temporary. So here is God's permanent abode. And, uh, and it says, so give orders... Uh, sorry, he says, uh, the Lord uh, said... Sorry, the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord told my father David when he said, your son, whom I will put on the throne in your place, will build a temple for my name. And so, here is God's second residence now being built. And if we go over to 2 Chronicles, because what comes next? You have a new place built for you? Well, moving day comes along. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and the first two verses, we read this. When Solomon finished praying... Now, you remember, they finished uh, erecting the tabernacle... And they gave it to the Lord and the Lord moved in. They've now finished building the temple, God's second address, and now look what happens. Solomon finished praying 
fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. So here we have the Shekinah glory and God moves into his temple. So what we've seen is this. Obviously, God's permanent address is heaven. I don't know what number. That is God's permanent address. But he created planet Earth. One day, heaven is going to be on planet Earth and we're going to share homes. But the point is, God will always live in heaven. But he said, but I want to live with my people as well. So he moved into a tent when Israel was in the wilderness. Now Israel are in solid homes, permanent places of residence, and so now God moves in. Address number two. But now we want to bring it up to the time of Jesus, all right? And in fact, during the time of Jesus, the temple there was actually being rebuilt. Yet again, it kept getting knocked down and it had to keep being rebuilt. And during the time of Jesus, the temple was still being rebuilt by King Herod, all right? So the temple in the holy city in the days of Jerusalem was a temple that was actually built by King Herod. Now, you need to know a little bit about King Herod. The first thing is that he wasn't a Jew. Herod was an Edomite, but he became a proselyte, i.e., he said that I want to hold the Jewish faith, all right? So he became a convert to Judaism. Now, he married into an incredibly important family because he married a woman called Miriamne who was of the Maccabean family. Now, the Maccabees, as they were called, they were the leaders of the equivalent of Israel's patriotic party. All right. And this family had ruled that party for a couple of hundred of years. And, in fact, you've probably heard of the exploits of the Maccabees, the same family. A couple of hundred years or so before Jesus came on the scene, Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek who was an absolutely terrible man, decided he wanted to wipe the Jews out. He hated the Jews. He was a real Hitler in that respect. And he wanted to destroy Israel totally. And it was the Maccabees who led the revolt against Antiochus and liberated Israel from the threat that he and his armies posed for them. So the Maccabees were a real legendary heroic family in Israel. All right. So then, Herod... An Edomite proselyte who'd become a Jew marries into the Maccabean family, a very, very powerful family. Now, he was also on terms with Caesar Augustus. I, I, this is Caesar of Rome, the big, the big kingpin in the world, Augustus. Herod was on friendly terms with him. And so what happened was that Augustus gave Herod control over Israel. Now remember, Israel was under Roman rule. They'd occupied Israel, rather like the Nazis did France, etc., during the war. And Caesar Augustus gave Herod the kingship over Israel. So Herod was Rome's acting king or agent. All right. <coughs> now, 
this guy Herod was also a very, very evil man. And this is important to understand because we're going to ask the question, was the temple at the time of Jesus, was it God's temple? It's an important question to ask. Now, this guy Herod was an evil man. He was a real... Uh, if I called him a horror, that, that is understating it. He was a desperately evil man and he was hated by his subjects. When he ended up being king over Israel, the Israelites knew exactly what he was like and they hated him. And so what he did is that Herod decided to rebuild the temple, which was still in ruins, to rebuild it in order to gain popularity from Israel to make his job of being king a bit easier. But of course, it didn't work because the Jews knew what Herod was. And I mean, they weren't going to be bought off by him like that. And in actual fact, Herod went on. I mean, there was intrigue and a murder and jealousy in his family. He had his wife and her two sons put to death. This is the kind of man he was. When it was a politic thing to do, he actually had his own family put to death, all right? Now, this is the temple that was around in the time of Jesus, a temple built by Herod. And that temple, Herod's temple, was eventually destroyed in AD 70 under the Romans, as the Romans invaded, <coughs> and has not yet since been rebuilt, all right? Now, Jesus was on the scene in the rebuilding stage 40 years before the temple was destroyed. So Jesus was on the scene whilst Herod was still in process of rebuilding it. All right. Now then, the thing is that although we've seen that the temple in the Old Testament was really of God and that God dwelt there, it's a completely different thing with the temple that was built by Herod. Because in its entire history, which wasn't long, it was being built in AD 30 and got demolished in AD 70, there was never ever an occasion when the Shekinah glory appeared there. Not once. Can you see? In the previous temples during the Old Testament from Solomon's onwards, the Shekinah glory appeared. God was in them. But this very short-lived temple at the time of Jesus, not once did the Shekinah glory appear. God was never in that temple at all. And we've got to ask ourselves, right, why not? Why was he in the previous temples, but why wasn't he in that temple? All right. And the answer is this. Because at that particular time, God was moving on from his temple phase. In exactly the same way that he once moved on from his tabernacle phase, at the time of Jesus, God had decided to move on from the temple phase. Can you see? He used to live in a tent in the wilderness, okay, he moved on from there because he found himself another pad, the temple, all right? But now we come up to the time of Jesus and we find that God isn't in the temple. Why isn't he? Well, because now he's found somewhere else that he wanted to live. Can you see? 
he'd moved out of his tabernacle phase into his temple phase. But now we're seeing that God has moved out of his temple phase and he's finding himself another little pad to live in. So the question is, right, if God wasn't living in the temple, what was the new address that he decided to move into? If he'd vacated the temple, where was he living now? What was God's new address at that time whereby he wasn't in the temple? We'll go to John's Gospel. John's Gospel and chapter 2. <coughs> John's Gospel, chapter 2, and find verse 19. The context of this bit we're going to read was Jesus' anger at them for their hypocrisy regarding the temple. They were in there making a killing financially. Now then, verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And he was talking about the temple of Herod that was there at the in his day. He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, hey, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days. And then John says, but the temple that he had spoken of was his body. Ah, now there's a big clue about God's third address on planet Earth. Go back to John chapter 1 and let us read verse 14. You know that the first verse in John is... In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God from the beginning. But listen to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And do you know what that word dwell means in the Greek? It means to tabernacle, to live in a tent. It's simply the Greek equivalent of Shekhan dwelling in a tent, as we saw in the Old Testament. And so, what we see here is that God's third address on planet Earth is now he's living, not in the tabernacle, not in the temple in Jerusalem, he's living in Jesus' body. Why would God be living in Jesus' body? Well, it's because Jesus was God become a man. That's why God was living in Jesus' body. Jesus was the Lord God. I live in my body. When God became a man called Jesus, he lived in his body. It's as simple as that. And if you go to Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, And uh, we'll read verse 19, and Paul says, and he's speaking here of Jesus, he says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And then if you go to chapter 2, and I'll read you verse 9, when Paul writes, For in Christ... All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. 
So here we have address number three. Now, God is not living in a tent while his people lived in tents. He's not now living in a temple while his people lived in their solid houses. What God has done now is he's taken the plan a bit further. He's not dwelling amongst his people in the way he used to. He has now become one of his people. He has actually become a human being. Now, let's ask, right, that's the end of the story. It's got to be. I mean, how do you top that? What further addresses could God possibly have? Well, let's, let's continue. Go back to John's Gospel. And in John, chapter 14, what on earth could address number four possibly be? John 14, and I'm going to read... Verse 16 and 17 first. Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you, up to that point, but will be in you. So here Jesus says, well, the Holy Spirit is going to live in you. But now let's move further down and go to verse 23. Because Jesus continues by saying, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. What is Jesus saying here? He is saying that the fullness of God, we refer to the Trinity, we have to, we have to fall back on inadequate words to try and encapsulate truths that we know are true but we can't explain. But God exists in three persons. And here, the Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit is now not living in Jesus. The Father lived in Jesus. The Spirit lived in Jesus. Jesus, in whom they lived, was the third person of the Godhead. But now, all three of them move into his disciples. So what we have now is that God lives in a tent? No. In a temple? No. In Jesus? Yes, of course. But now, the Father and the Son in Jesus, with Jesus, has now moved into believers. Now, this is called something, of course, something that is true individually and corporately. Now, we're dealing here with church. We're dealing with the corporate. But the point is, obviously, Jesus, the Father and the Holy Spirit, live in each believer individually. But we're going to be concentrating on the church, our corporate relationship. Because if it's true that the Lord lives in me and the Lord lives in you, that gives you and I something in common that is so powerful it gives us a possibility of community and relationship way outside anything that had ever existed before. And that's what we're going to look at. So now the question is, we saw when God moved into the tabernacle. We saw when the day came. 
we saw the day when God moved into the temple. We didn't see the day when God moved into Jesus, but that was the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Now, when did God move into address number four? Well, if you go to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, sorry, Acts chapter 2, and um, let's read um, verses 1 to 4. Now, just to ask you a question, does this remind you of something we've already seen? When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now this is strange stuff. It had never happened before. But does it not to you bear all the marks of the Shekinah glory moving into yet another home. Because that's exactly what is happening here. The Shekinah glory moves into the corporate body of believers. The church of Jesus is now born. It's the corporate body of believers in whom the Lord God lives. Now, let me take you back to verse 15 in the previous chapter, Acts 1. And I just want to, I don't want to push this a great deal, all right, but uh, maybe important. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. 120 believers gathered together on the day of Pentecost. When the Shekinah glory, when the Holy Spirit fell on the church, well, fell on believers and made them the church for the first time, there are 120 of them. Now then, if you just go back with me to 2, two Chronicles, and uh, in, in 2 Chronicles, chapter 5, now this relates to the temple, God's second address, once uh, Israel was in the Promised Land. And... Um, and 2 Chronicles, now chapter 7 is, is, is an account of the moving in, but in 2 Chronicles 5 verse 12, we just get a little bit of information about the, what was going on in the temple prior to God moving in. And uh, in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, I'm going to read verse 12. All the Levites who were musicians... Asaph, Heman, Jeduthun, and their sons and relatives stood on the east side of the altar, dressed in the linen and playing cymbals, hearts, and lyres. They were accompanied by a hundred and twenty priests sounding trumpets. Now, throughout the Bible, trumpets are a picture of a new thing that God is proclaiming that he's about to do. Here, when God was about to move into the temple, there were 120 people playing trumpets, and they were priests, heralding that God was about to move in. I just put it to you, seeing as one of the reasons the church is here is to trumpet the love of Jesus, is it a coincidence that there are 120 believers on the day of Pentecost? I don't think so. 
Because it's a picture, these Old Testament pictures, tabernacle and temple, are telling us something about a greater truth, a greater experience, a greater fulfilment of God's plan that is further down the road. And so once we get into the New Testament, all this is happening. And the church is now in existence. Now, go with me to 1 Peter. Um, I'm, I'm sorry if all this Bible hopping is wearisome, but I, I, I don't want you to take anything from me. <laughs> you know, you've got to be happy that what I'm saying is what the Bible says. So 1, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4... Um, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, that's just, um, where, where shall we start? 1, 1 Peter chapter 2, yeah, let's, let's just read from verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, now who's he talking to? Believers coming together. Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There you have Peter saying, we're the temple now. God doesn't live in the temple of bricks. He lives in us, the temple of flesh and blood, his people. Go, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And in verse 19, Paul says, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's significant about that verse is that here is Paul appealing to believers as individuals not to commit adultery or not to be immoral, because he says that is the only sin against your body. And he says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So here he's addressing that God in his fullness lives in every individual believer. But if you now go over to 2 Corinthians, and find chapter 6. And in verse 16, we read, um, What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So there you've got the fact that Paul is saying, and corporately, we are the temple of the living God. And it's this corporate aspect of believers coming together that we're going to see is what the church is all about. So what we've got is this. We've come, where does God live today? Well, obviously, he still lives in heaven. He doesn't live in the tabernacle anymore. He doesn't live in the temple anymore. He does still live in Jesus, but he also with the Spirit and Jesus, lives in us. So fundamentally, where does God live today? He lives in the church. The church, and underline this in red ink three times, the church is Jesus' home. Now, you will have probably heard a lot of theology, systematic or otherwise. Now, 90% of it will have been good because it's laying out truths that we need to know. But sometimes it can all be very dusty. It can all be very dusty. Underline it, the church is Jesus' home. Now, you could come and visit Blinder and I. You could, you could, you know, sort of come and stay with us. And you could, you could spend your days writing down the colour of the curtains, 
Um, how big's the backyard? Uh, what sort of washing machine does Belinda have? And all that is good and accurate information about our home. But in another way, it's not. If you want to find out about what being at home with Burris and Belinda is about, just come and hang out with us. Can you see? The home is important, but this is what I mean. Theology gives you the details that you need to know, but the church is Jesus' home. It's where he lives. And in Matthew 16, verse 18, we have one of the really well-known sayings of Jesus, I will build my church. But what people don't often know, there are different words in the Greek for build. The word that Jesus used, the, the word that the inspired writer of Scripture in that instance used for build, is a Greek word oikodomeo, and it means specifically to build a house. And this is why the New Testament calls the church the body of Christ. Remember what I said earlier. I live in my body. That's where I live. Where does God live in his body? Well, get this. I live in my body. So does Jesus live in my body. You live in your body. So does Jesus live in your body if you're a disciple of Jesus. That's why the church is the body of Christ. We live in our body. We are the body of Christ. We are where Jesus lives. Now, Jesus still has his glorified body in heaven. Jesus still physically in his glorified body lives in heaven. But he lives on earth too, so he's got a body in heaven. He wanted one on earth as well. And that's us. The church is Jesus' home. It's his body. It's where he lives. So because Jesus lives in two places at once, heaven and earth, that makes you and I... Do you remember, uh, you know, the whole thing about Checkpoint Charlie during the Cold War, the place in Germany where the Free West met the Communist East, and there was the, it was called Checkpoint Charlie. It was where two totally different worlds met. Well, the church is the Checkpoint Charlie between heaven and earth. And this is why one of the pictures we had in the Old Testament was of a temple with priests. Because priests mediate between God and man. And this is why you and I, because we're the temple, we're also priests. Because if you know Jesus, you can bring anyone to Jesus. You can mediate between God and man. So we are the divine checkpoint, Charlie, between heaven and earth. Now, we've just got to clear up another point, and that we've got to understand that the church exists in different kind of, not forms, but different ways. There is, for instance, what theologians call the church universal. Now, what the church universal is all about is the fact that every believer throughout history, every believer alive today, plus every believer who's not even born again yet, you see, in the future, people who aren't even physically born, throughout that church age, Every believer, past, present and future, is part of the body of Christ. So you get the church universal. I call that the church throughout space and time. So I don't know if Spock ever got saved, but uh, he's in the mix somewhere. I mean, I'm sure that Captain Kirk was a Christian. He was such a good guy. But that's, that's 400 years into the future. The Federation hasn't formed yet. But can you see, we have the church throughout space and time. But then secondly, we have what uh, the theologians call the church militant, i.e. every believer on the earth at any given point in time across the world. Now, I refer to that as the, um, the church throughout space at any given time. 
Okay, and uh, you know, so, so this is the way the church breaks down. But of course, in any given moment, you've obviously got far more believers than could ever be in one church. They're still the church corporately because Jesus lives in all of us. But this church is broken down into smaller units, into nations and towns. But ultimately, what we see in the New Testament is that the smallest constituent part of the church... So now we're boiling down to what church is in the sense of we're talking about, we're talking about the church that you would actually be part of in an individual locality. What we see in scripture universally is that the smallest unit were churches that simply met in people's homes. And so therefore, a church, we're not now talking about the church, now we've boiled it down to a church. And that's the church at the level that impacts on us, because that's the church that you're actively part of. So we can define it now that a church, as I've described, is God's home. That's what we're seeing. It's where the Lord lives. Now, let's just make a fundamental point. Is For most people throughout history, and there are always exceptions to this, but where your home is is where your family is. Home is indivisible from family. Now, you get students who go away to college and university, but eventually they marry and have their own family, their own home. So home in the Bible is totally tied up with family. Your home is where your family is. So what we've got now is a further definition of a church. A church is an extended family of God. And when you've said that, you've really said just about everything that needs to be said. But because I'm me, I'm going to find some more to say. So um, if we just look at 1 Timothy, so uh, 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and uh, 3 verse, uh, verses 14 to 15. Um, and we get this. Although I hope to come and see you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. He's writing to a group of believers. He defines their church as the house of God which is their household, their family, the family unit in which they live. So a church is a family of God. Now in the Bible we have lots of pictures in the New Testament of church. And they tell us lots of important things. But they're pictures. For instance, we're likened to a flock of sheep. Now there are lots of things that we can learn about church from a flock of sheep. But if any of you think you are literally sheep, perhaps you could give me a bah now. No takers. The church is likened in the New Testament to being a field of corn, a harvest field. And there's a lovely picture. We can learn so much from that. And if there are any sheaves of corn here, literally, would you wave in the wind for me for a little while? No. These are pictures. There's nothing literal about them. And the point is, they go so far but no further. Sheep are mindless. But that's not what we learn from that picture. We just pick out the things from the picture that are consistent with the rest of Scripture. 
But there's something in the Bible, a concept, that gets thought of as a picture, and it's not. When I say that the church, a church, is an extended family of God, that is not a picture. It is literal. We are literally brothers and sisters. That's not a picture. That is literal. God is literally our Father. That's not a picture. Jesus is literally our big brother. That's not a picture. It is the literal truth, because we are quite literally the family of God. So what we're going to start to look at now is we're going to ask a question, well, what is it that families do when they come together? I mean, you know, it's pretty usual to at least one day a week, maybe off, uh, you know, more often than that, but, you know, we, we like to get the family together. And what do families do when they come together? Well, what they tend to do is they hang out, they relate to each other, there's time often when the whole family is, you know, addressing the whole family, so everyone is together in that time, and you can build each other up, just whatever's needed. And, uh, you know, and then if, if you're a pretty normally fa normal family, you're, you're, you're going to have a meal together. And where's this going to take place? Well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take place, presumably, in one of the houses of one of the members of that particular family. And so what we're going to ask now is this. Well, so if we've established that a church is a family of God, then if we ask the question, okay, so how does the Bible tell us that churches ought to be set up? How, how, how do they function? I mean, what do you do? Establish that a church is a family. It's for being family in. So now we're going to say, well, so, so does the Bible show us what we're meant to do when we come together? And if it does, and I'm going to show you that it does, then is it not logical that we might expect for it to actually be consistent with the idea that we are an extended family? So what I want to, to just put before you is that when, when we turn to the New Testament, we actually have in its pages a blueprint that the apostles passed on to churches for how churches ought to set up, how they ought to function, um, and sort of how you do church. Now, I've, I've done in talks elsewhere, and this is all in the tradition series, that, 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 that when it boils down to this, this isn't a matter of biblical interpretation. Amongst Bible scholars, there is no disagreement about what the early churches were like and that they were all the same. I mean, it's just, just, just the case. And so what I want to just show you is that this, this kind of blueprint has four constituent parts to it. We observe four things universally about the early church. The first thing we observe is that their leadership was not a hierarchy in any form. So each church was just an independent grouping. They would relate to each other as other churches. But any leadership was simply <clears throat> through kind of brothers who were raised up from within the assembly, 
having been recognised by the people. The Bible calls them variously elders, pastors, shepherds, bishops, overseers. These, these are all synonymous terms in the Bible for the same guys. It's not a position, it's a function. It's not something you are, it's something you do. And, and, and so we see that any leadership that there was in the early church was simply the recognised older brothers who had proven their lives because they'd been with those people for so long. And that was it. They held no authority over the church. The only authority they had was moral authority. They weren't in a position over the church. And there wasn't anyone outside the church over that church. They didn't have hierarchies over networks of churches or anything like that at all. Even the original apostles didn't operate like that. They moved heaven and earth to get every church to not need them anymore. But they were there if you needed them. But they didn't come in the big denominational leaders, anything like that at all. So you have a completely homegrown, plural, co-equal, non-hierarchical leadership in each church as God raises it up. That's it. The theologians won't disagree with that. The second thing, we find that every time churches are located, it's in people's houses. Okay, is that important? Well, let's ask the question. Why did the early church not build buildings for worship? Everyone else did. Every believer in the New Testament came from a Greek, well, sorry, a pagan or a Jewish background. The Jews had their synagogues and their temple. All the pagans, every pagan religion known at the time of the early church was, was based in religious buildings. The early church conspicuously wasn't. The answer is, they never needed buildings because as they were meeting in houses, what they did when they came together necessitated that numbers were small. Because when they came together, and we know it was the first day of the week, that was when they came together, when a church would come together, okay, then the two other aspects of how a church functions was that when they came together, there were a coin here with two sides. One side of the coin is that there would be completely open sharing together. The early church had no services. I'll say that again. The early church had no services. I'll say that again. The early church didn't have services. What they would do, they were just sitting round in a circle in the living room. And when they came together, it says each one has. No one led it because they didn't have that sort of leaders. Each one was free to take part as the Holy Spirit moved through them. So that was the first side of the coin. And in that time, then that part of each one hath is, there's prayer in there, there's worship, there's singing, there are the gifts of the Spirit, there's teaching, there's revelation, there's exhorting each other. The whole idea is to build each other up. You've had a week in the world and it's rubbed off on us. It's dragged us down. We need to recharge. We come together as a church, we build each other up ready for the next week. That's why it's the first day of the week, to get you ready for the week to come. And that was just a total open participatory thing with no one leading out. You know, no one leading it, just hanging out together. The second side of the coin is that they had a celebratory meal. They ate together the Lord's Supper, and it was a meal. Now then, let's put those things together. All right, 
when churches come together, there's, there's, there's no authoritarian, you know, kind of hierarchy, because what we're dealing with here is an organism, it's not an organisation. So, people come together, there's no organisational hierarchy over it, anything like that. They're in homes, they hang out together, they eat together. Isn't that what families do? But what have we seen? A church is a family. So what would we expect? <laughs> I mean, you know, if you've got a family, you know, I mean, you know, sort of like, you know, a, a family where you go to a family gathering and there's dad up front in his best suit and he's leading a kind of a community singing, then he makes a speech for three quarters of an hour and then he dismisses you all. If you're lucky, you might get a cup of coffee and then you all go home again. Family gathering? Dysfunctional family. Okay? Now, what happened with the early church is that when the apostles died, the leaders who emerged after that, and, uh, you know, sort of like who, who became the influence in the church, completely lost sight of what the apostles taught. And they changed it. They changed it completely. And what they did is they moved church away from being family and they made it an organisation. And the changes they made were this. The first thing they did is they introduced hierarchical priesthood. By the early part of the second century, you couldn't even be baptised without the bishop okaying it. That's how fast it went. The first thing they did was they introduced hierarchical priesthood, a caste system between believers. Immediately, the things led from the front. Okay? Um, the Lord's Supper as a full meal became inconvenient because of abuses like happened at Corinth, so they junked the meal, and what they said is, we'll have bread and wine services. So now, we've got hierarchical leadership, we have you come together and you kind of sit, it's led from the front, so you don't participate, you sit and listen, and the leader leads everything, okay? Uh, so the participatory thing's gone. The, the Lord's Supper is a full meal have gone, you've just got bread and wine in another little service after one you've already had, for heaven's sake. And then lastly, when the Roman Empire, you know, supposedly became Christian, and said, hey, you can have all the religious temples, we don't want them anymore. They thought, oh, great, and it was the logical conclusion to move into religious buildings. And we've been there ever since. The fathers changed the church from being family to becoming an organisation. Now, let me just ask this question. I'm just showing you, and theologians aren't going to agree with it, aren't going to challenge me on this, I'm just showing you how the early church was. Now, where, where I would disagree with most others is that I think we should do it like that. I think the apostles knew best. They think the fathers knew best. I disagree with that. So let's ask a question. I've shown you very quickly what a New Testament church was like. And we're saying here, we should still be like it. Nothing should have changed. Ask a question. What's the opposite of meeting in homes? Well, this is a philosophical point, but how about me not meeting in homes? Yeah? Anywhere. Religious buildings, you know, hired halls. Big, big, big. You're supposed to be small. It's big that you don't want. Because if you're big, you can't all take part and you can't have the Lord's Supper as a full meal. 
So the opposite of meeting in homes is, you know, meeting in, in buildings. What, what's the opposite to open sharing, everyone free to take part? Well, services led from the front. What's the opposite of having the Lord's Supper as a full meal? Well, not having it as a full meal and having some bread and wine variation. And uh, what's, what's the opposite of having leadership that is non-hierarchical, it's plural, it's co-equal, it's indigenous, i.e. homegrown, um, and, uh, you know, what is the opposite of that? Well, the opposite of that is the idea of having an hierarchically authorised man, single, over the church, who you import from the outside. I mean, look, let's, let's hand it to Christians. We have been consistent. We have consistently done the opposite of Scripture. And we have fully done the opposite of Scripture. We haven't been heart-hearted. We have thrown ourselves in to being churches that are the exact opposite to what they should have been. Well, that's at least consistent. But, but now we're saying, okay, enough of that, enough of that. And, and so what, what I want you to get is that th this is a, a whole package, these four things. Non-hierarchical, indigenous leadership that isn't holding a position. So no leader-led divide at all. Coming together in house because you don't need anything other than a house to do what you're supposed to do. Open sharing, participating, the Lord building the church up through every believer gathered, and then having Lord's Supper as a full meal. Now think, think of a house built on four stilts. Now if you take any one of them away, you're in trouble. This is a package. It's a package deal. Um, you know, and if you want to get the idea of package deal when it comes to design, and we're talking about how God designed the church, you design something to fulfil the function it's supposed to do. I mean, Blinge and I fly a lot. We, we, we tend, we, we prefer the airlines whose planes have two wings. It's a design thing. You see, now, if, you, if, if you've got a plane, all right, and there it is, it, it's taking you from, you know, across the ocean, a long, long way, okay. Well, you want certain things in that aeroplane. You want more than one wing, that helps. You, you want a kind of symmetry either side, okay. Uh, you, want a, you want a fuselage, because you want to sit in it, you don't want to hang on to it, all right. Uh, you want somewhere for the pilot to sit. That's a good... Yeah, we have a cockpit, yeah. Yeah, we always check they've got them. And not only that, we want a pilot sitting there, all right, and then a bit of motive power helps. Because <laughs> if there ain't nothing to drive it along, it's not going anywhere. Now, the point is, take any one of those aspects of design away, would you fly with this airline? Oh, yeah. No, we're a good airline. No, we got four out of five. Uh, we don't have any pilots yet, but we'll just put it on auto, press the button, and, and the plane will do the rest. No, if, if you mess with any aspects of the design, you prevent the thing doing what it's designed to do. What's the church designed to do? Well, I thought the church was designed to do what families do. Don't we have little babies and then teach them to grow up right? And isn't, isn't, isn't the church supposed to have little born-again babies? You know, little, you know, I mean, they might be 60 years old, but they get born again, they come to Jesus. Aren't we then supposed to, with our new little spiritual babes, put them in families where they can grow up? Isn't that what we all need to be in families? The balance between loving each other unconditionally, 
and, and holding to truth and knowing when correction is needed. The balance is bringing the two together. That if correction is needed, and for heaven's sake, it's only a small part. So, 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 but the point is, and that's called family. So every, when Paul says about growing up together in, into Christ, it's family. So, so that's why when you understand that church is family, it's safe to be discipled. Because you know that everyone loves you just, the, uh, just the, way, the way you are. They'll correct you. They want you to be better. They want you to grow up in, 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 into the Lord more and more. And they're all growing up into the Lord more and more. You know, I can't come along and say, oh, you useless little Christian, you sinned. Because I know how much I still sin. There's that love. We're all helping each other. Okay. Now, the other thing to understand is that, that, that this works because people say, what, just a clump of ordinary believers getting together and doing it? You see, because we've, we've, we've all known experience where if you're in the existing churches, you see, it's very presumptuous to think that God can use you if the experts aren't overseeing you because they've been trained. Now, I mean, yeah, any wisdom you can get, get it. But the thing to realise, the reason that this works is for this. We all understand that I spoke earlier about the church universal, the church throughout space and time. And, I mean, you know, there's a million, million teachers out there who bang on that Jesus is Lord of the church universal, and indeed he is. But what we have completely forgotten and what the early church fathers forgot was that Jesus is not only the head of the church universal, the church throughout space and time, he is also the head of each individual church. You see? So it's not you muddling through on your own without the experts. It's you muddling through on your own with Jesus and his word. Now, the Lord often brings others from the outside to help. That, but my goodness, if he brings them along, let them help you. But what more do you need? We've got Jesus, we've got the truth of his word. Can you see the beauty of this? But of course, what the fathers did was brought about a situation where the experts had to be okaying everything because they were the ones who knew. And the only reason that other believers didn't know more is because for the next thousand years, these guys had planted churches which, which spent a millennium making sure that the average man didn't even see a Bible. They'll only be able to read one because the truth was just too threatening. So... Let me sum up like this. Let's, let's picture that uh, you, you go away on holiday, you've got a vacation coming up, and you've, you've brought in an architect and a construction guy, and you, you want a, a, a nice kind of, you want a, a, a nice double garage in the backyard, you know, for your car, right? And you, you give him the plans, and you say, I want it round there, backyard, here are the plans, nice double garage, I'll, I'll have the old automatic doors, please. Lovely. And you look forward to coming back from on holiday, you've been on vacation, and you're just waiting to drive in and see those doors open, and in you go with your car. And you drive up the road and you turn into your front yard, and there, on your lawn, in front of the windows of the lounge, is a hen house. And you think, 
I ordered a garage. Now, you might want a word with that construction guy. <laughs> and you might want to say, I gave you a design, a blueprint for a garage. And he said, mm, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, I consulted with others. We all agreed. That's what the blueprint was. It was a garage. And you said, where's my garage? And they said, oh, I thought you might like a hen house. I mean, I know it's different, but, you know, it works. It works. I mean, you can get hens that they'll be so happy in there. Are you going to pay him? <laughs> now, can you see, Jesus has given us Via the teaching of the apostles, he gave the apostles, by revelation, everything that we now have in the New Testament. He gave it to the apostles. The apostles gave it to the early churches. That's why they were all the same, because no one had thought up unbiblical churches yet. That came later. And because we've got it all written down, Jesus gave it to us in here. Okay? So he has given us a blueprint that his people would all be part of a little church. Related to all the other little churches, when you get too big, you split up, bang, two churches. Wonderful, that's how we grow. And he wants us to be like a family, to come together, no hierarchy, hanging out together, eating together, sharing him together, extending our lives, our families into each other, not obtrusively, not that the lines are blurred, Belinda and I are a family quite distinct from the church family, but we're part of a wider family, see? And that's what Jesus wanted. And he looks down and what are we giving him? Numbers of Christians gathering together on the Lord's Day, incidentally the only thing that the early church fathers didn't change, because it was the only thing that didn't make any difference to their power. What does it matter when, what day you meet? I mean, you know, you can dominate, you know, what does it matter what day you dominate people on? So they, they were happy with keeping it the first day of the week. The only thing that remains of the biblical pattern, okay? And Jesus looks down, he sees us going into religious buildings, we sit there having fellowship with the back of someone's neck, there's someone up the front who we pay to do what the Word of God says we're supposed to be doing. And we say, Lord, we give you your church. And he says, oh, well, at least I've got somewhere to put my hands now. I wanted a garage from a car. You see, it's totally... Now, we're not saying that what's out there isn't church. We've all been part... Well, I'm sure most of us have been part of unbiblical churches. We're not saying that unbiblical churches aren't churches. We're just saying they're not biblical. But we don't want to fight with anyone. We just want to get on and plant biblical churches. Think of it like this. We know that a family is supposed to be mum, dad and the kids, and if you're lucky in-laws that you don't have to run away from all the time, you know, and, uh, you know, sort of, and, and that, that's family, and the kids grow up, and that's family. But when you look at families today, you see, you know, mum on her own, dad on their own, or mum and dad together, but arguing all the time, and, you know, no one takes care of the kids, mum's too busy earning loads of money, as well as dad, because they want a big lifestyle, so the kids are out on the streets causing trouble, stuff like that. Now then, is it a family? Yes, yeah, a family. Is it a biblical family? No, it's a dysfunctional family. And the kids will grow up all wrong. Now then, what we've come out of is church, but it's dysfunctional church. And do you know the tragedy? We all grew up wrong in it. This is why it's so hard for us to get back to what we should be. So what we're saying is that we simply want biblical churches, which are simply family. 
to be family, God's extended family, and, and, and to that, that will minimise the risk of becoming dysfunctional. And remember as well, that, um, we're not doing this because we just think it's time for a change. That's not what we're about. We're not about this because we think we've come up with something that works better. We're at this because it's what we see in the Bible. Now, if, if I saw in the Bible churches in big buildings with hierarchical leadership and services, and well, that's what I do. I don't think I'd like it anymore, <laughs> but that's what I do. But thank heavens, that isn't what the Lord designed. We're about this because it's what the Bible says. And if it's what the Bible says, it's what God wants. Now then, if you're in the blessed position, and some are and some aren't, to be able to build your home, darling, let's design our own house. We've got the money we can pay to have our own house built. Now, if it's your money, if it's your house, at bare minimum, you want it built your way. The church is Jesus' house. Let's build it his way. That's what we're saying. And this is what I want to end on tonight. We are God's family in Chigwall. We are the household of God in this area. We are the family of God. Now, in this series and the future talks that we'll be doing, we're going to cover the teaching of the Bible on most of the aspects of its teaching about this, being the church. We now know from the study tonight what we are as a church. We now know that we are God's home where he lives and we are his family because he's, he's dad, all right? We know that we're his home and we know that we're his family. But the next question that we must move on to, and it will take 23 or 24 more studies, is right, that's what we are, but how do we be it? We are God's family, we are God's home, but how do we be that? I mean, you know as well as I do that you can have two houses, and both houses contain a household. Both houses contain a family. And you can have in 21, all right, you know, Milchester Crescent, mm. you can have a family that is in utter disarray, a family of resentments. We're their family, but they live like enemies. But in number 23, Milchester Crescent, <laughs> you can have a family who love each other and live like a family. Can you see, being a family isn't enough. We've got to now know how it is, therefore, we ought to be living as God's family. And that's what the rest of the series will do. If you want a little catchphrase to sum up what the Church Life series is about, it's quite simply this. It's everything you ever wanted to know about being a church but were afraid to ask. We will continue next time.